Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and verse 1. Acts 17, 1 for our message from God's Word this morning. If you're using the church Bible and need a little help finding Acts 17, 1, you'll find it on page 1172. Today's date is January 22nd, 2023. Today's text is going to be in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 17. And the title of this morning's message is The Apostle Paul's same old routine. Apostle Paul, same old routine. And we begin with the story of an efficiency expert who was giving a lecture to some bosses, bosses who wanted to be able to teach their employees how to do their jobs in the most efficient way. He ended his lecture by telling them, just don't try these techniques at home. One of the bosses asked him, well, why? Don't they work at home? And the efficiency expert replied, well, let me tell you, for years... I watched my wife's breakfast-making routine, and I noticed that she made a lot of trips between the refrigerator, stove, the cabinets, and the breakfast table, usually carrying just one thing at a time. So one day I said to her, Honey... Why don't you try carrying several things at once? And that'll make your breakfast routine more efficient. And the boss asked, What happened? Didn't it work? And he said, Well, yes and no. It used to take her 20 minutes to make breakfast and Now, I do it in ten. (laughs) Yes. That's why you don't want to tell your wife how to make her routines more efficient. Well, speaking of efficient routines, the Apostle Paul has one that he'd been using for years. And we're about to see him use it again here in Acts 17. The story begins in the first two verses of our text in Acts 17, where we read these words. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul, as his manner was, uh, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now here we see Paul engaging in the same old routine he'd been using for years. Every time he entered a new city, he made a beeline for the Jewish synagogue. But before we talk about that, did you notice in verse 1 that Paul just passed right through the cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia without preaching the gospel in those towns? So we have to begin our message by asking why he would do that. Our Calvinist friends would say that God didn't choose any of the people in those cities to be saved, so he told Paul not to even bother preaching in those cities. But we know that God does not choose who's going to be saved. We do. So there's got to be some other explanation for why Paul didn't preach in those towns. And there is. And it has to do with a new routine that Paul had started using recently. Remember, we saw how he started out his ministry by just going from one small town to another. And one day he figured out he was never going to reach the world by doing things that way. So after he examined his methods and thought it through, he decided to target big cities and establish churches in those big cities and then let the gospel radiate out from those big cities to all the little towns and cities around them. And the small cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia were in between the big city of Philippi that Paul just left and the big city of Thessalonica where he was going. So he skipped those towns because he knew they would hear the gospel down the road. And you know what? We know that his new policy worked because after he established the church in Thessalonica, look what he wrote to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8. From you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place every place including Apollonia and Amphipolis. So Paul might have skipped preaching the gospel in those towns, but eventually they heard the gospel. And that means that someday in heaven, you're going to meet people who lived in the towns of Apollonia and Amphipolis. But now, when we get back to Paul's old routine... We have to ask why Paul would 
keep going to the Jewish synagogues and then tell the Romans in Romans 11.13, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. Well, if he was the apostle of the Gentiles, why would he keep going to the Jews in the Jewish synagogues? And the answer to that question lies in the context of that verse in Romans 11, where Paul goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, talking about the Jews, and might save some of them. The reason Paul went from synagogue to synagogue was to provoke those Jews to get saved. Now, if you studied the four Gospels, you know that that was kind of a different tactic than the one that the Lord used and the twelve apostles used. They invited the Jews to get saved, and some of them did. But as you also know, the nation of Israel as a whole did not believe. They they rejected the Lord instead. So before Paul went to the Gentiles, God sent him to the Jews to give them one last chance to be saved using this, this new method of provocation or provoking. And that explains what Paul says in Romans 10.21, where he quotes God as saying this, To Israel, he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people, the people of Israel. After God's people in Israel rejected him, God Almighty bent over backwards to reach out to them through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I mean, if inviting the Jews to get saved didn't work, maybe provoking them would. And Paul says there in Romans 11 that the way he provoked them was by magnifying his office as Apostle to the Gentiles. And That word magnify, that means to make something look bigger. When you were a kid, did you play with magnifying glasses like I did? If you did, you know how they work. You'd focus on something and then you'd draw it closer to your face in order to make it look bigger. But now, how do you do that with an office, like Apostle of the Gentiles' office. (laughs) How do you magnify the office of the Apostle of the Gentiles? I mean, it's not like Paul could put a magnifying glass on himself and then keep putting it closer to the face of (laughs) of of the Jews he was talking to there. So instead... 
He went around to the synagogues telling the Jews that he was the apostle of the Gentiles. We would say he got in their face and provoked them. But how would that provoke a Jew to believe the gospel? Well, look back at that one, two, three, third reference there in Romans eleven, thirteen, and 14, where Paul says that he wanted to provoke the Jews to emulation. And that word emulation means jealousy. As you see in the context of that verse in Romans eleven, thirteen, and 14, where in your next reference it says of the Jews... Through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. I magnify my office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh. So, emulation is a form of jealousy. But... How would magnifying his office make the Jews jealous of Paul? Well, folks, it was because he was doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were the ones that God wanted to be taking the gospel to the Gentile. That was their job. But when they refused to get saved and do it, God raised up the Apostle Paul to do it. So God was using Paul to make the Jews jealous of his ministry to the Gentiles. And that made them want to get saved to help Paul go to the Gentiles. You see, emulation is jealousy but it is a specific kind of jealousy. Emulation makes someone so jealous that they want to emulate you. (laughs) And emulate means to want to equal you or excel you at what you're doing. Emulation makes somebody say, I am so jealous of what you're doing. I'll show you that I can do it as good as you can or better. And that's what Paul was doing to the Jews. God told him to go around to the synagogues and magnify what he was doing among the Gentiles to make the Jews so jealous that they would want to get saved and equal what he was doing or even excel what he was doing among the Gentiles. He He wanted a Jew to say, I'll show you I can reach the Gentiles as good or better than you can, Paul. And some of the Jews did get saved. And they became his equals in reaching the Gentiles. Paul mentions some of them by name in your next reference in Colossians 4, verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus and Marcus and Jesus, which, who obviously is 
another guy named Jesus, who are of the circumcision are my fellow workers. And we talked about that word fellow many times, folks. It means equal. So those were some of the Jews who got saved and became his equals in reaching the Gentiles. But not a lot of Jews got saved and helped him because the dispensation of grace is primarily a Gentile dispensation. But listen, this dispensation of grace is going to end at the rapture. And this dispensation that's primarily a Gentile dispensation will end at the rapture. And then an entire nation of Jews will believe and they're going to excel what Paul did among the Gentiles. Just as God predicted in Romans 11 and verse 12 where it says of the Jews, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, the Jews' fullness. After the Jews fell when they stoned Stephen, God raised up Paul to go to the Gentiles and he brought the riches of God's grace to the entire world. But that verse says, when Israel's fullness comes in the kingdom of heaven on earth, way more Gentiles are going to get saved. Look at how Isaiah describes the kingdom in Isaiah 11, 6 9. He says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I gotta tell you, the Apostle Paul did a pretty bang up job in reaching the Gentiles. But knowledge of the Lord does not cover the earth as thoroughly as the waters cover the sea, uh, as, uh, cover the sea. But it will when a whole nation of Jews gets saved and God reintroduces that Jewish dispensation. You know, the most wonderful thing about the kingdom isn't that you won't have to worry about wild animals eating your farm animals. The most wonderful thing about the kingdom is that everybody on the planet will know about the Lord. But in the meantime, God's word says that the way to reach the Jews is to magnify Paul's office of apostle of the Gentiles by magnifying his epistles. Instead of doing what most Christians do and magnify the Lord's ministry in the four Gospels there. That's what most of them do. But we've got God's word on it that what we're doing is the right way. Now, before we talk about how the church in Thessalonica got started, 
I want to say something about the church that Paul just left in Philippi. Look what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. In the beginning of the gospel, in other words, when he first got to Philippi, when I departed from Macedonia, where Philippi was, no church communicated with me as uh, as concerning giving you and receiving But ye only, only you guys supported me in the ministry. For even in Thessalonica, the very next town he goes to, ye sent once and again under my necessity. When the Apostle Paul left the Macedonian city of Philippi, those Philippians sent money to Paul, what does it say? Once and again. Now, don't forget what we learned in our scripture reading this morning. In verse 2 here, it says that Paul was only in Thessalonica three Sabbath days, or a total of two weeks between those three Sabbath days. That means the Philippians sent Paul two gifts in two weeks, and they had to hunt him down to do it. And I looked it up on the internet, and it says that it would take about three and a half days for a healthy messenger to walk the hundred miles from Philippi to Thessalonica, making it a 200-mile, seven-day round trip, right? So if they sent Paul two gifts in two weeks... That means they sent some poor dude with money for Paul, and when he got back a week later, they sent him back with another gift. I mean, can't you just picture that? The poor guy gets back from walking 200 miles in seven days, and they say, well done. Here's another gift we want you to take to Paul. How would you like to walk 400 miles in 14 days? You say, well, maybe they used a different messenger. And I suppose that could be. But remember, the church in Philippi, we saw when we studied it, was mostly made up of women. And what few men they had probably had jobs that they couldn't call off two weeks in a row. I mean, imagine if the jailer phoned in and said, well, you know, nobody here going to be to feed the prisoners because I got to (laughs) go. So I think, I think the Philippians used the same messenger. And as a matter of fact, we even know his name. Look at Philippians 2, 25 to 30, where Paul says, Epaphroditus, your messenger and he that ministered to my wants was sick nigh unto death. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and and, and hold such men in reputation because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death not regarding his life. Now I want you to notice something about that verse. 
Notice that Paul didn't call Epaphroditus one of the messengers that ministered to Paul's wants, like he would have had, would have said, if they had two. Listen, Epaphroditus was the only messenger they had to take money to Paul to minister to his wants. Now, we know he didn't get sick from all that walking because Paul wrote Philippians about ten years later. (laughs) But let me ask you, doesn't he sound like the kind of guy who would walk 400 miles in 14 days and work himself nearly to death? for the work of the ministry does to me. You know, when you hear about Christians like that, I hope you do what Paul says to do there and hold them in reputation. Because they're the real heroes in life. Now, in verse 3, we read more about Paul's routine when it tells us that Inside that synagogue, Paul was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Now, here you've got an example of how Paul stuck to his routine no matter what it cost him. Because he just left Philippi where he preached that same old message and they beat him and threw him in prison. So you'd think when he got to the next town he'd dial it back a little and maybe not get so aggressive with the gospel. But that was not Paul's routine. That's not how the Apostle Paul rolled. Look what he told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses. Well, I guess it's just verse 2. Even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi where they beat him and imprisoned him, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God. Paul didn't let the abuse he got in Philippi stop him. He didn't even let it slow him down. If anything, it spurred him on. Listen, it took guts, it took courage to walk into a Jewish synagogue and allege that Jesus was their Messiah. They didn't want to believe that the the lowly carpenter from Nazareth was their Messiah. They wanted a king riding on a white horse and not a carpenter riding on a donkey like the Lord did on that first Palm Sunday. And the idea that their Messiah would be crucified, oh folks, that really tripped them up. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, where he says, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. So why was it a stumbling block? Well, it's because crucifixion was the death of criminals, not messiahs. It was the equivalent of the electric chair or the gas chamber. 
If you died that way, it made you look like a crook, not a Christ. So it caused a lot of the Jews to stumble on him instead of believing on him. But why would that trip the Jews up if Old Testament Jews like Abraham and David got saved by believing that someday their Christ would die for their sins like most Christians say they believed? Well, you know the answer to that. That's not what they believed to be saved. Not what Abraham believed. Look at Galatians 3.8. God preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, here's the words of the gospel that were preached to Abraham, in thee shall all be blessed. Does that sound to you like someday Christ will die for your sins? No! Abraham, all he believed to be saved was in you, all nations are going to be blessed. When he believed that, God saved him from his sins by applying the blood of Christ to his heart. So he was saved by the blood of Christ, but he was not saved by believing in the blood of Christ, as you and I are today. Now, there were verses in the Old Testament that said Christ would have to die. The reason it took three Sabbath days to try to convince them that their Christ had to die is that the Jews didn't like those verses. (laughs) They didn't like the verses that said that their Christ would come and have to die. They didn't like to hear that their Messiah would be killed by his enemies. They liked the verses that said Christ would come and kill their enemies instead. Those are the verses that John the Baptist's father quoted in Luke 1, verses 68 to 74, your next reference. The Lord God of Israel has raised up a horn of salvation for us, us Jews, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all the enemies that hate us, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him. Hey, folks, the Jews like verses like that. But they ignored the verses that said that their Christ would come and die. Now, to be fair to them, in the verses that said that Christ would come and die, it wasn't always clear who it was talking about. So when Jesus came and died, most of the Jews didn't believe on him. But Paul spent three Sabbath days telling them Christ needed to die to fulfill those scriptures and so he could die for your sins. And when the end of verse 3 there says that Paul told them, this Jesus whom I preach is is Christ, that wouldn't have been hard to reason with them out of the scriptures, would it? For one thing, Jesus of Nazareth was of the tribe that the scriptures said Christ would come from, right? 
Genesis 49.10, the scepter, who holds a scepter? Kings, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Every king Israel had there was from Judah. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now Shiloh is just one of the many names for Christ and Messiah, right? And Jesus of Nazareth was born of the tribe of Judah. I'll bet Paul also quoted what Micah the prophet said in Micah 5.2. Bethlehem, out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. As you know, the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was from everlasting before that. He existed in eternity past with God the Father. I bet Paul also quoted Isaiah 35 when he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica, where it says, Your God will come. He will come and save you. And then what will happen? Then, when your God comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap. Well, isn't that what the Lord did? Their God had come. And Paul knew that the Jews in that synagogue had heard that Jesus of Nazareth had done all of those things. All the things that their Bible said their Christ would do. So he opened up his Bible and alleged that Jesus was their Christ. Now, hearing all that evidence, and I'm sure I just, you know, we're talking about three Sabbath days of messages. Hearing all that evidence, you'd think that a great multitude of the Jews would have believed, but... As you read on in your Bible there in verse 4, that's not what happened. And some of them believed, just, just some, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Only some of the Jews believed in spite of three Sabbath days of evidence from the Word of God. But a great multitude of Gentiles believed. Now we've seen in our study, they weren't allowed in the synagogue, but they were allowed to hang out outside of the synagogues and listen in. So they knew the Old Testament too. They understood what Paul was saying. And what you're seeing there in that verse is is a picture of what we see in the body of Christ today, folks, because the body of Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles in one body, right? But the vast majority of the members of the body of Christ are Gentiles. But there are some Jews who believe, and verse 3 there says the ones who believed there in Thessalonica consorted with Paul and Silas. Now that's a word that means they associated with him. 
Now listen, before this, no Jews would associate with Paul. They considered him a turncoat traitor who turned his back on Judaism and he was running around with those hicky Gentiles, those, those unclean Gentiles. But some of the Jews in Thessalonica were, were open to what the Scriptures taught. And I'll have to tell you, the Scriptures can overcome some pretty powerful prejudices, can't they? Now the Jews who believed there in Thessalonica, they probably rejoiced to see that great multitude of Gentiles believe on their God. But the Jews who didn't believe, they weren't quite as joyful as you see in verse 5 of our text. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. There's something you want on your business card or your bumper sticker. I'm a lewd fellow of the baser sort. And gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring Paul and Silas out to the people. When those Jews who refused to believe saw all those Gentiles believe, it says in verse 5, they were moved with envy. And you know what envy is? Envy is another form of jealousy, isn't it? Emulation is the good kind of jealousy. Envy is the bad kind. So when Paul magnified his office to provoke the Jews to jealousy in general, the Jews who didn't believe were provoked to envy. The Jews who did believe were provoked to emulation. They, the, the Jews who didn't believe, they said to themselves, how come we couldn't get all those Gentiles to believe and start coming to the synagogue and putting money in our offering box? Yeah, they were envious. You know, it's the same thing that happened back in Acts 13, 44, and 45. Remember this in your next reference? The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city of Gentiles together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with what? Not the good kind of jealousy, the bad kind, with envy. And they spake against Paul. Well, there you see the Jews had a routine too, didn't they? <laughs> a, routine, a routine of envying the results that Paul was getting among the Gentiles. Only here in Acts 17, the Jews that didn't believe are starting to get more violent. They found certain lewd fellows of the baser sort to, to, to lead an assault on the house where they thought Paul was staying. Now you know what that word lewd means. It means, means lustful. And that word base, that means lowly. Like the, the base of something is usually the lowest part, right? So these guys were some pretty low-life dudes. 
They probably found them on uh, on the street corners waiting for the hookers to come by to satisfy their lusts, right? Lewd fellows of the baser sort. And those lewd base fellows, it says they got a company of citizens together there in verse 5, and the next thing you know, the entire city's on an uproar. If you want to know, if you want to see an example of how a little sin like envy can snowball and end in disaster, that's it. I mean, that verse started out with envy in the hearts of just a few men, and two lines later, it ends with a, a major uproar in a major city. So when you, you get to envying things, you just remember this passage here. And then remember that envy killed the Son of God. Like it says in your next reference, Matthew 27, 17 and 18, Pilate knew that for envy, Jews envied again, they, they had delivered him to, to Pilate. Those unsaved Jews envied the Lord's popularity and their envy led them to kill him. You know what that means? That means you shouldn't let envy get so much as a, a toehold in your life. Because if you do, it's going to snowball into an avalanche of misery and destruction in your life. And the life of people around you too, probably. Now who's this Jason guy? Well, it's easy to understand why they, why they assaulted the house of Jason looking for Paul because of what Paul wrote in Romans 16.21 where he talks about Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen, and how they say hello to you. If that's the same Jason, well, he was a member of Paul's kinfolk, right? And we think it was the same Jason because... Check your concordance, you'll see he's the only other Jason in the Bible. So naturally, those unsaved Jews figured they'd find Paul at the house of his relatives. But as we read on, we find out that Paul wasn't dumb enough to stay with relatives. And in verses 6 and 7, it says, And when they found them not... They drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come here too, whom Jason has received. And these are all these guys do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, one Jesus. Now, when it says that those Jews got those lewd fellows to draw Paul and Silas to the rulers of the city, you can be sure Satan was behind that, right? And what, what you're seeing there is a, a downward progression from what we saw Satan do back in chapter 16. Back in chapter 16, Satan used a better class of men to draw to draw Paul to the rulers. Remember what we saw in Acts 16, 16 to 20 there? Your next reference? A certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divina divination 
broader masters, good responsible citizens of Philippi, much gain by soothsaying. But Paul said to the spirit, I, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And when those masters saw the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them to the roar, saying, These men do exceedingly trouble our city. Back then, Satan used some local businessmen, some, some local merchants, to sit the law on Paul. Here he's using a much lower class of rabble to sick the law on Paul. That kind of begs the question of how low can Satan go? I almost entitled this message the, the Limbo Dance of the Devil. How many of you remember Chubby Checker's song, the Limbo Rock song? Anybody? You know, the older I get, the less chubby he looks in those old pictures there, you know. So. But now, the thing they charged Paul with in verse 6 there was true. He was turning the world upside down. But the world needed to be turned upside down. Because it was already upside down. Adam turned it upside down when he ate that fruit. So turning it upside down again would turn it upside right. And the way that Paul was doing it, the way he was turning the world upside down was the nice way to do it. Because he was doing it by preaching the gospel of the grace of God. But let me tell you, once the dispensation of grace ends at the rapture, the gloves are coming off, folks. (laughs) And God's going to turn the world upside down in his wrath and not in his grace. First, he's going to go after the Jews because they should have known better. Look at, look at your next reference there in Second uh, Kings 12, 21, 12 to 15. Thus saith the Lord, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth it, both his ears will tingle. You ever wonder where that expression comes from? It comes from the Bible. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish. Well, wives, you can get your your husband to do the drying if you do the washing. You know, he wipes it, wiping it, and turning it upside down because they've done evil. Now that's talking about the captivity they had to go through, but you could tell by the way that's worded. That has a reference to the future as well. God is going to start turning this entire world upside down by turning Israel upside down with judgment. Like Peter says in your next reference. 1 Peter 4.17 Judgment must begin at the house of God. At us. I know the, the temple was the house of God, but when he says at us, he's talking about God's other house. The house of Israel. Judgment's going to begin with Israel. But after God turns Israel upside down, he plans to turn the whole world upside down like Isaiah describes in Isaiah 24, 1 and 19. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it, the earth, upside down, scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. 
The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. And I read that and I thought, well, that kind of gives new meaning to that old song. He's got the whole world in his hands. I mean, that sounds nice and all, but one of these days... God is going to fix all that's wrong with this world by taking the world that's in His hands and turning it upside down and shaking it to fix everything that's wrong in this world. But for now, for now He wants it turned upside down with grace and not with wrath. He wants it turned upside down with grace and not with angry petitions or protest marches or anything like that. If you're listening to this message or watching this video and you're trying to turn the world upside right by becoming a political activist, please quit calling yourself a follower of the Apostle Paul. Because there's nothing Pauline about what you're doing. Paul turned the world upside down with the preaching of grace. I know it turned my life upside down. How about yours? But now, if this charge of doing things contrary to Caesar, if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's what they charged the Lord with. In Luke 23, 1 and 2, the whole multitude led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying... We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. You want to get a politician's attention? Yeah, that guy's not paying his taxes. Saying that he himself is a king. He himself is Christ a king. And this this tactic tactic of, of, of sicking the law on believers works every time. As you can see back in your Bible now in your final two verses, in verses 8 and 9. It says that when they went around saying that in verse 7 that uh, Paul's doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar, they that troubled, they troubled the city. They troubled the people with those words. They troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security bond money, bail of Jason and of the other, they let him go. Now, if that reaction to that tactic sounds familiar, it's because it's the same reaction the Jews uh, got there in John 19, verse 12. Pilate sought to release the Lord, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, Thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And hearing that, Pilate killed the Lord because of that trumped up charge. And, and listen, you may not know this or not, but the, these unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, they killed some of the believers in Thessalonica. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look what Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 and 15. 
He says, you guys became followers of the churches in Judea. How did they become followers of the churches in Judea? For you also have suffered like things of your countrymen there in Thessalonica, the, the, the rulers and the, and the citizens, even as they have of the Jews. The Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. He's saying the Jews killed the Lord and their prophets and now you're suffering the same things from your countrymen. And he means they were suffering death from their countrymen. Do you ever wonder why Paul picked the Thessalonian church to say what he said in your last reference there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17? He said, I would not have you ignorant concerning them which have died, them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ shall rise first up the ground level. That rise from the dead, in other words. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Listen, folks. When it talks about the dead in Christ in Thessalonica, they didn't die of malaria. They died at the hands of their countrymen because they got accused of doing things contrary to the king. And the further, the further away you stay from men who are trying to pervert this nation, the more likely you won't die in the same way. Be Pauline instead. Preach grace instead. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's great faithfulness. Pray that we might follow in his footsteps and let nothing stop us or even slow us down from sharing the only life-giving message on the planet, the gospel of the grace of God. I pray it in the Savior's name. Amen.